Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Apuhan. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sundays, February 25th. We'll get it. Keep the year is flying it. by. We're in February, honey. It's the yeah. second month. we got plenty of time. Of 2024. Okay, good. Good. It's cold. It's cold, but it's the last that's February. Yeah, we're getting into March. Before you know it, March. March. You know his birthday's coming up. Right. I want to give away. Right. Yours, getting ready. Your birthday. Getting ready for the uh, big big trip. trip. Yes. Well, leave it at that. But, uh, yeah, you know, spring is just around the corner uh, a few weeks from now. And it's going to be warm the next few days. A little warmer. But in any event, we have a lot to cover because we have been out there. Intrepid. Uh, I mean, first we want to say that uh, right. Rafaela is doing fine. <laughs> For the, for the loyal with? listeners That's right. who know that there's Prop a new girl in for. town. That's right. And, uh, yeah, so she is... Hazi's looking after her. Hazi's looking after her. Yeah, she's in good her. hands. <laughs> oh, yes, for sure. Okay, so uh, we went to the theater this week. We went to the theater. We were, went to one of those Encores productions um, in which they do revivals over a couple of weekends. And uh, the show this time was Jelly's Last Jam, which is the musical story, uh, to some degree at least, of Jelly Roll Morton, a key figure in the development of jazz in the early 1900s. Uh, and let me stop there because it's really a not plot. It's not a plot-driven play, honestly, well, or exercise. Right. Let's stop. And what, it's, what, and- what do you think? None of it's true. Yeah, none of it's true. But what do you think of the music? Except the music. Well, let me just say, we had zero expectations. We didn't know anything about it. I, I didn't look anything up. Right. And I was, you know, we've been disappointed so many times recently that I was reluctant to get uh, excited or be knowledgeable. Right. And of course, as luck would have it, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. That's the that's the headline. It was fantastic. And I'm saying this now because it's two weekends. The Apnea cast the broadcast before the second weekend, which would be the first, which second, would be third impossible. of March. No, you're not going to see it. You no one's going to see uh, it. You know, don't give up. But the point is this. <laughs> I sent an email to a friend of mine right away. The headline in my email was, and subject, drop everything. Go see Jelly's Last Jam. And that's because of the music the dancing, the singing, it was fantastic. Yeah. It was fantastic. Uh, it, the performances were just incredible. Yeah. And and, uh, and the music, which I'm not familiar with, uh, and Jelly Roll Morton, again, being uh, a person who uh, composed all this jazz music in the early 1900s, he's a controversial figure to some degree because he was apparently a very difficult person. Um but he wasn't exactly as portrayed in the play, which yeah. makes, makes it a little bit complicated. Uh, the play makes him kind of a worse guy than he was. Uh, and also punishes him for claiming to be the inventor or the creator of jazz. Uh, and uh, maybe that was too big a claim. But here, here's what's interesting about him. Then we'll get to the performances. Okay. There's something to that claim. And I'll, I'll tell you what it is. And that is because... Well, every well, GS has been associated properly with extemporizing, right? Uh, creating on the fly—that's what GS is. Uh, they were just, you know, starting. It was just starting to develop in the early 1900s, and he had a classical background, and he actually 
uh, wrote music and he wrote out the orchestrations. And he's the only, the first person to do this. Maybe it became, it was rare, generally speaking, but the first person to write out full orchestrations of jazz arrangements, arrangements that he had come up with. And to that degree, you could see him thinking, I'm the guy who's really laying this down so that this will be an art form filed for generations, because otherwise it's completely lost. So his music is is there. Well, perhaps, you know, we could say he he codified yeah. jazz but, music but, but he's or not, something but, like but, that. But he's not, he's not but writing... But he liked to say he was the inventor. But, well, but also, he was, writing, he, was tra- he was writing orchestrations for his own music. It's not just he was... Listening and writing it down, he was yeah. more than that. So he was the only, so the play kind of compares him unfavorably to someone like Armstrong. And make a remark: Armstrong is is, is extemporizing while he, he's playing music. He's a fantastic artist, but he's not writing down arrangements for other people to play in the future. Okay, he's doing a completely different thing. This guy has it in his head that like classical music, jazz is going to survive in these written arrangements. It turns out that events overtook him, and that's not the way it developed. So that's why. He's not okay. remember the way he might right. remember. But back to the back to the All show. All right, the, the show the show was great. The show was great. Okay, um, first of all, the main character, the guy who plays Jelly, Nicholas Christopher. All right, here's the interesting thing about him. First of all, he's fantastic. Right, big uh, voice. Yes, big voice. Excellent dancer. Um, you know, and and look again. I don't want to lose the headline. The the. The musical uh, production numbers were unbelievable. And review after review that we read afterwards kept saying the same thing. They blow the roof off the theater at City Center. It was unreal. And people mm-hmm. went mm-hmm. crazy. Okay. He sang and danced, danced wonderfully. Um, and he, the story with him is it's kind of interesting. It's a parallel story to the one that was uh, offered by the last Encore's production, which you had Sutton Foster who was in um, Once Upon a Mattress. And they made a point in writing about the t- in the Times that she was kind of working on Once Upon a Mattress while she was alternating learning the part for Sweeney Todd because she was booked to do Sweeney Todd and the challenge of doing that, which is obviously a huge challenge. Well, he had a sort of very similar challenge, although the dates were reversed. He, he had been, over the last few months, the understudy for Sweeney Todd. He and Jenna DeWall, who was the woman who starred in Diana, were the two understudies for Leeds and Sweeney Todd. And they were told, really because of Sutton Foster's schedule, that there would be an interim two-week period before Sutton uh, was ready uh, to do it with Aaron Tveit. And they would perform as the leads mm-hmm. in Sweeney Todd for those two weeks. Well, again, those two weeks just ended, right? Mm-hmm. So he was doing something very similar to Sutton Foster. He was performing Sweeney Todd while he was learning uh, this part. Mm-hmm. In Jelly's Last Jam. And of course, they're two completely different styles of music and completely mm-hmm. different types of performance. So it was just amazing that he did it. I mean, and he was fantastic. The, you know, you could go on the list of, you know, five, six, seven, eight performers. There's some notable things that you noted, I know. Leslie Uggams. All right. Leslie Uggams is in this and she sings. She she portrays his grandmother. Yeah. The matriarch of the family. Yeah. Elderly matriarch. She sings. Her voice was unbelievable. Right. She's her not voice singing. was so strong. I mean, you know, you always have uh, these, you often have in the encore stuff, cameo appearances, 
by mature stars, okay? And uh, they rarely are called upon to sing the way she sang. Right. Um, For good reason. So unless it was piped in. No, it wasn't piped in. I mean, it was Um, unbelievable. She she, she was terrific. Her voice was so incredibly strong. Um, Billy Porter, who I never really look forward to seeing, quite honestly. I know. You are not a Billy Porter fan. No. Was uh, in a part that was almost written for Billy Porter. You'll be interested to know that one of the previous people who played that part, who was sort of a representative of the underworld and the guy to all the events that happens, yeah. one of the previous persons who played that part was Ben Vereen. No surprise. Okay. It's that kind of thing. So Billy Porter was excellent. Right. The, the three honeys, this was interesting. There's sort of these three women who are sort of sirens, who are slinking around, dancing, scandally clad or whatever, and, and sort of like almost a chorus, and they're moving yeah. the story along. All right, so these are kind of uh, sexual parts to some degree. The three women who starred in this were the women who starred in the original production in 1992. The right. same three Right, the women. women who originated those roles. Yes. Mamie Duncan Gibbs, Stephanie Pope, Lofgren, and Allison Williams. The same three women who are a little bit older now. But we were kind just of just watch yourself, Dan. A watch little yourself. bit older, just a little bit older. Anyway, uh, it, it was it was an amazing, amazing. Production. It was a delightful evening. Yeah, it was fantastic. Really. So if if the timing's right and you hear this and you get a chance, go, go, go. I mean, the play doesn't work for a lot of reasons. Um, no, the second act falls off the table. No, but the music's great. But that's, the dancing was great. That's true. Um, a lot of things. Yeah. But. Yeah. So, I mean, my only question is, uh, you know, uh, what took them so long <laughs> to, to, revive to come on? Yeah. Well, for somebody to do this, I mean, maybe it seems like the dream cast. Maybe, mm. maybe it's just too obvious a thing. I said to you before, maybe um, people, you know, when when it comes to coming up with a um, diverse cast or a um, black forward uh, story. Yeah. Um, that they're reluctant to do that something that's about mm-hmm. jazz and tap dancing is same old same old and maybe black performers want to get beyond that I don't know uh, well, but, I, I have an answer for this though. What? because the original uh, version which was honored wasn't best musical play in the Tonys but uh, they won for best actor for musical it was, it was recognized as, as, as a nice good great work of art even though it didn't quite make money this is in 1992. It was conceived as a tap dancing virtuoso show. In other words, yeah. they cast Gregory Hines in it and Savvy right. and Glover, two yeah. huge tap dancing names. Right. And the show was pitched that way. Yeah. And Gregory Hines did the choreography. So, with unless you, they didn't, you couldn't put this on the show. It was thought you couldn't put the show on without them. Or it's the equivalent of right. them, and there is no equivalent of them. Right, I'm just saying. But they, I'm just saying. They, you know, they changed the show, is what I'm telling. Okay, you. but you think in terms of uh, you know, like American fiction. Yeah. All right. The whole story is you know, uh, black writers want to be known for more than just writing yeah. about the ghetto and drug dealers. Yeah. There's more to black people than that. Yeah. Uh, there's more to black performers than tap dance. Uh, yeah, but I don't, I don't know where you're going with that. Honestly. No, I. First of all, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just saying. I don't even think that's um, what American fiction was about, honestly. But uh, right, that's true. That's true. But it was partially. Yeah, but I, it I'm, was included. All right, let's saying, not argue about but, that. But, but what let's I'm saying, just the get simple back. reason is 
it was because Saving Glover wasn't around. And everyone said, well, that's a Saving Glover show. No one can do it. I think that's the reason it wasn't put on. And they, they, reach, they changed the show to emphasize less the tap dancing. There's, in a sense, less of the same dancing than there was in the original show. Even though the tap dancing was great, and particularly the range of people, not just the one or two leads. And there are, as we were to come, there are a lot of women tap dancers here. And they're not 19 years old either, who are unbelievably good. Right. You know, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Do people still love tap dancing, you think? Uh, I think nobody loves tap dancing until they're sitting and watching it. Right. Right. I, I believe that. Yeah. It's like uh, you don't uh, stay up nights dreaming about marching bands, but when one goes by, you're completely caught up. Tap dancing a little more so, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, 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 no. There's There are certain things that, uh, you know. Certain sounds, yeah, that get you going. Certain, I'm, I'm, yeah. You don't dream about marching bands, no. Okay, so not not on a regular basis. All right, so uh, you remember when you used to go when we would go to um, Best Buy, and they put you in a room and to demonstrate the TV sound, yeah, yeah. they would have um, some uh, movie that had um, drummers, the, the drumming competitions. Oh, the, yeah. The, okay. yeah. Uh, from the bands because yeah. that's where the sound yeah, that's sounds the best. Yeah. That, you know, that makes every sound system sound spectacular. Oh, okay. Never, you know, moving right along. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> then we saw a movie. We saw The Taste of Things. And The Taste of Things is uh, the movie with Juliette Binoche, as it's known. Right, French movie, yeah. you know. In our area, was released, uh, came into the theaters on Valentine's Day. As it should have. Because it's about food and love right. and en français. Yeah, en français. So it's Juliette Binoche and apparently uh, her former romantic partner, Benoit uh, Majamel. And... Um, it's uh, directed by Tran An Hung, who is a Vietnamese-born French director, uh, who hasn't done much, if any, commercial work in the U.S. Uh, obviously, this movie's in French. He's done some commercial work in, in France, but not a lot. Not a lot. But he is well-known in France, apparently. Uh, and uh, this is the story uh, of uh, a man and a woman who uh, work together uh, preparing food. Uh, his, he being That's a, great, a funny way to say it. He's a, he's a great epicure by reputation. She's a wonderful cook. And uh, they are in 1895. Uh, in 1885. 1885. In this 1885 kitchen creating these wonderful dishes. It's I'll a, stop it's there. About the, What's well, it about? It's about a, he, he's a French gentleman of some sort. He's a, you're right. He's a gourmand. Yeah. Uh, he's obsessed with food. Epicure is the word. And... Yeah. Uh, yeah, keep going. And um, he uh, has a group of friends mm-hmm. get together to eat like crazy. He's obsessed with food. Right. And uh, this is the story of his relationship with the, the woman who lives with him and is his cook. Right. And uh, apparently he proposes to her, you know, every few years or something like that. But, and they've been, uh, you know... Uh, plotting these menus together, dreaming up uh, fabulous food for some 20 years, and she refuses to marry him. But, but, but she's been, you know, she well, works look, for him. They work together uh, 
creating all this fabulous food. They uh, develop a loving relationship. They're lovers. There's even some thought of matrimony. But uh, the film um, is a lot about what's on the screen. Is a lot of food preparation, uh, which, but at the same time, uh, it's they're working together and they're working together as, as almost becomes an expression or a demonstration of of the, their relationship, their respect for each other, and ultimately their love. I mean, that's no, what shows it's their, connection. their relationship with each other, with food, right. with their neighbors, with their friends. Right. You know, it's hard to uh, explain, but you experience it, it, it. I mean, it does work as a movie. I mean, it does sort of their relationship comes across. You feel it, you understand it well uh, without, you know, a lot of dialogue. Uh, and you understand, uh, and there's a lot to the notion of, you know, how their relation is developed and deepens by virtue of their work together. They're working and creating together is what really uh, nurtures that relationship and makes it as deep and meaningful a relationship as it is. And there's a reality to that. Right. Uh, and that's at the heart of the film. So the film works, uh, that said, there's a lot of food preparation. And so if you're not interested in food... It's going to be tough. You're not going to go for the movie. I mean, and even if you are interested in food, it tests you. I was reading something which said that the first scene, which is this preparation of this you know, extreme meal and the serving of the meal, takes 35 minutes. And there's very little dialogue. And you see them with, with, you know, with the meat. You see them with the fish. You see them with the vegetables. You see them. You see them with entrails. Right. Yeah. And you see them. Yeah. You see them butchering. You see them boiling. You see them straining. You see them developing sauces. You see them ladling the sauces on. And you see these people eating enormous amounts of these various courses. You know, at the end, we were talking. Say, do you want to get something to eat? I said, I'm kind of torn between really wanting something to eat and wanting never to eat again. Yes. So yes, it was tough. But I think it's worth seeing. Yeah. Did you want to eat anything that you were seeing prepared? Yeah. At the very I mean, beginning. to some extent, it was, you don't want to see me. how the sausage is made. Uh, you I, mean, know? I didn't mind watching a lot of sausage being made. It wasn't, it wasn't too terrible. It was just, but it was so overwhelming that uh, you, you couldn't, you know, as you experienced and thought about one dish, you were on to the next so quickly, and then you were overwhelmed. So I couldn't identify with any one thing. The one funny thing was for me, and of course, it was that. Uh, so this is eighteen eighty five, yeah. And uh, the big dessert was baked Alaska. Right. So of course we're watching it with subtitles, mm -hmm. and uh, in the subtitles it says baked Alaska, because so right. that's what we know of. You know, it's cake with ice cream and meringue on top right. and then you know you um you know brown off the meringue and uh with a flame yeah yeah use and very often people do it with heated brandy uh-huh okay um here they did it in the oven and then all right, all right. So with the, the, brandy on top it might have been the double which, double so move there. Yeah, i'm yeah. not sure they really needed to do that but maybe that's the way it's they movie, did it honey. in 1885 and uh of course they bring up that uh this was all this was kind of a a height of fashion dessert yeah. maybe yeah. it was invented uh you know uh around the time of the uh you know Parisian World's Fair in like the 1860s yeah. and it uh was a way of showing 
egg whites as uh, an insulator. An insulator, right. okay. Um, so, um, but in French, if you listen to the French, they call it a Norwegian omelet, <laughs> which is what the rest of the world apparently calls baked Alaska. And uh, you know, the um, the guy who invented it basically was kind of clueless about. Uh, you know, just knew it should be something that commemorated a cold place. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he just picked uh, Norway well, it's cold uh, out of the hat. Yeah. Um, but the funny thing is we first heard that uh, name, Norwegian Omelette, about 50 years ago when we were in Corsica. And yeah. we were in a French restaurant. Yeah. Um, in Corsica, by the shore, well, you know, almost everything's by the shore. It's such right. a small island. And, uh, you know, the restaurant came in, you know, somebody, a waiter came in serving baked Alaska. And we said, oh, what do you call that? We asked our waiter. And he said, oh, that's a Norwegian omelet. Yeah. And uh, so this is like the second time in 50 years I've heard that expression. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't listening to the French like you were, so I, I just said so big Alaska, but yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, but anyway, it's, uh, so it, then, yeah, it's a it's a good um, it's a beautiful movie. Oh, you know, I should mention, but you have to enjoy food. You know, because we were in the theater, we were in the city. We, we went again to uh, Via Carote. We had a wonderful meal, uh, and uh, yeah, what, what can you say? I mean, it's just kind of talk about amazing food. And uh, what did you have? That we should, it's worth mentioning the salt cod. What, what, what is it called? Again? Bacala. Bacala. You had the bacala. So it is salt cod soaked yeah. and mixed with mashed potatoes. I know it doesn't sound very elegant. But it was very but good. But it's delicious. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you also, because we were in the city, you went to the museum. El Museum. Right? Yeah. I went to... Um, went to the Met. The Metropolitan Museum. And uh, had actually went to the Harlem Renaissance show. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't have any particular expectations, and uh, as usual, I was blown away. It's a great show. It's mm-hmm. a great show. Um, very dynamic. I certainly uh, went with the um, Jelly's Last Jam. Uh, Harlem Renaissance, uh, pretty much uh, right. same uh, time period, uh, and. Um, there were just uh, two things, two, you know, a lot of artists I was already familiar with, not as many as I should, because the, worth knowing, uh, great stuff. But but what was really um, driving me wild with desire in this show was portraits. And there was a bunch of portraits uh, by the various casts of characters, not only on the... Um, uh, artistic side, but the intellectual side, by Vinold Reese. Um, and they were done in pastels. Mm-hmm. And pastels make such great portraits because of the uh, powder mm-hmm. quality of them and the discrete particles of powder kind of pick up and reflect light mm-hmm. in a very realistic way. So pastels aren't very durable, but they're great for portraits Mm -hmm. as long as they're intact. And uh, I had never heard of this uh, artist, Reese, R-E-I-S-S. And um, 
it was great to uh, see those portraits. They were just a delight, whether they were of significant people or um, or just more everyday people. Um, also a bunch of fun, fun portraits and uh, pieces by William H. Johnson um, and just full of life caricatures, but not in a um, demeaning uh, way or a stereotypical way. Uh, wonderful, flat, lively, modernistic um, a style, William H. Johnson. And then, you know, many other, uh, Aaron Douglas, Romare Burden, uh, Horace Pippin, uh, a lot of well-known figures. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And uh, so that's what I did in uh, Metropolitan Museum this time. Okay. What else did I do while I was there? And they just kind of wandered around and, you know, saw some old friends. Oh, what was really funny was, you know, we were staying in, we stayed in a hotel overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I actually recognized people from the hotel in the museum. I didn't invade the private space, yes. but it was just funny to uh, um, see those people doing right. the same kind of stuff I was doing. Okay, good. So uh, there's an article that you pointed out to me. So I was reading the meat sheet. You yeah. know what the meat sheet is, yeah. right? It's where they have the weddings listed in uh, the um, style section in the Sunday Times. Okay. And uh, they usually have one big story. And I was just kind of glancing at it. And one of the headlines was, A Unicorn of a Man Loves Football and Knows Show Tunes too." So this is a story about, uh, you know, a kind of middle-aged couple getting together and with pictures uh, and so on. And I'm saying hardly a unicorn. Unicorn means like one-off. There are not, you know, many of those. I have Dan Abuhoff sitting right next to me, knows football and show tunes. So I bring this up to you. I show you this article. I say, uh, you know, and you said, is there any el- anything else interesting about this? I said, I don't know. I don't have time to read it. You can uh, you can read it. And what did you realize when you read I the article? That, uh, I know well the woman who's part of the couple. You know the woman. Yes. Who has, you know, come upon right. this unicorn of right. a man. So Jill Raffson is the artistic director of Classic Stage Company. And I'm a, an emerit- emeritus board member. So I work with Jill. I've been on the phone with her twice a week over the last few weeks. I didn't know that she had just gotten married. Uh, and she and it's about her being a couple with this fellow, Zach Miller, the so-called unicorn. I haven't talked to uh, Jill since this article, but I have to fill her in. This is not a unicorn. Right. Not a unicorn. These and guys are a dime a dozen. Exactly. Dime a they dozen. Have, some of them have their own podcast. I know more about theater than this guy just from reading the article. And I certainly know more about football. And I know that because he's a Jets fan. He hasn't watched football for 20 years, if you ask me. So, uh, you know, once again, the Times is a big mistake on the part of the Times saying that this guy's a unicorn. Uh, but that said, it was kind so of funny. So that was funny. Yeah, reading about a person you know. So yeah, it's one thing to bump to into somebody in the museum that you barely know. It's another thing to... See somebody in the New York Times, you really know pretty well. But also because you you pulled it for a complete, you know, an independent reason. And I said, yeah, you know what else is interesting about this? I was just on the phone with this woman. But there, there's that. Right. All Back right. to food. Back to food, of course. So yeah. a, couple, a couple of stories that uh, caught my eye yeah. the last few weeks. We didn't have time to get to them. Um, and one was Back 
to French food yeah. about souffles. Right. There was a recipe for a souffle and uh, kind of an essay about, uh, you know, how a woman loves souffles um, in the magazine section of the Times a couple of weeks ago, which is funny because I had just, uh, you know, in, in January we had some people over for dinner mm. and uh, I made a chocolate souffle right. because chocolate souffle is our Christmas day right. dessert. Right. We have it every year, chocolate souffle. Right. Um, and uh, so for some reason, I just felt make, like making a chocolate souffle. A souffle turns out it's a pretty easy thing to make. Well, you just made a cheese souffle and, last well, week. I, well, I'm saying once we had the chocolate souffle and we were all sitting around saying, wow, this is pretty good. Right. right? And then it was in the New York Times, souffles are good. And then I was thinking, yeah, you know, I, I learned how to make a souffle yeah. in... Eighth grade. Home ec class. Eighth grade. They used to teach you how to cook. That's and right. And they wanted you to know how to make things, you know, like souffle. Right. You know, I that, that's kind of funny because the other things we learned to make were chili. Yeah. And um, jello mold. I knew you were going to say something about jello. Okay. Yeah. With mandarin oranges, right, right. ginger ale, right. and... And um, maybe even a little bit of nuts or something like that. But the souffle stuck with me because when you get down to it, there's a little bit of technique involved, separating eggs, whipping egg whites, whatever, um, folding them in. But it's a very simple, delicious thing. You you had the cheese souffle. Wasn't it shockingly delightful? Yes, it was good, but it was great. So a cheese souffle with a nice green salad, you can't really do better than that. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you can't do better than that, but it's quite good. It's quite good. I, I mean, that's a more delightful French meal than what we were seeing well, on the big screen. But now I'm saying to myself, when did you ask make chili? I, you learned to make chili in eighth grade. I don't say, you don't make chili hardly I at all. I make chili all the time. Well, it, sure, what, what? sure. Who's how, eating it? How often? What are you making all the time? How? Like, wait a minute. What? Okay. How many times this year have I made that chili for... Hazi's family. Well, that's for Hazi's family. That's I'm not getting it. Though. With yeah. with the biscuits on top. You've made it once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've made a good amount of chili uh, over. I, really, over. I I don't think of that as chili because it has the biscuits in it. But I guess it's chili. I think uh, yeah. Okay. Beans and ground meat. Yeah. Okay. And uh, some peppers and tomatoes. Yeah, yeah, that's what we call chili. I mean, I can tell you the eighth grade recipe is one can of beans. One green pepper, one can of tomatoes, yeah. and a pound of ground beef, and a teaspoon of uh, chili powder. My sense of you, when you have a lot of ground uh, meat that's getting defrosted, is you're thinking moussaka more than you're thinking chili. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I, I've made chili a lot more than I've made moussaka, but I love a, I love a good moussaka. See, there, it's easy, no doubt about it's that. It's easy to divert you. There's no question about You know, I'm basically it. a hamburger helper kind of girl. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I guess you know you, we laugh, but when okay. But anyway, let's move, let's move along quickly. When we were young, you did make hamburger help. I did not. I That's have a, never purchased I hamburger think, help in my you, life. I think you did. No. You think I'm no. when I was yes. a kid, yes. in high school, no. my mother made. Yeah, yeah maybe. Good. I don't even. I'm, All right. I'm not even sure your mother did. Your All mother right. probably made. Are you we some done with souffles? No, we're it, we're done with souffles, but not Korean food. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. This is interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, big article in the New York Times food section a couple of weeks ago about a group of restaurants, more than 20 restaurants owned by Hand Hospitality, Korean restaurants. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
and uh, the founder of the group, I pronounce it hand, I don't know how it's pronounced uh, by Koreans, uh, is Kiro Lee, right? He came from Korea as a young guy and was uh, studying at FIT, Fashion Institute, right? And Fashion Institute is not too far from uh, what we call Koreatown, where there are all these Korean restaurants. He was very disappointed in the, you know, in what was available. He found the Korean restaurants kind of dull um, and uh, old-fashioned and not at all like what people were eating and doing and drinking in Seoul, Korea. Mm -hmm. And so he ends up, um, you know, creating his own restaurants Mm -hmm. as a very young guy. And by now, as I said, there are over 20 restaurants. I can't name them all. I'm not going to name them all. I can't even pronounce most of them. But uh, so just, you know, Google hand hospitality if you're interested. The food sounds interesting. It's not uh, being created. The menus are not designed. The restaurants are not designed for an American uh, clientele so much as for um, Korean. Right. Korean Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. with an eye with an eye to what Korean Americans want to eat, but also with an eye to what's going on in Korea. Mm-hmm. You know, it's up to date. It's interesting. It's, uh, you know, um, the decor is uh, in many places kind of minimalist, but, uh, you know, from homey to elegant. Uh, so, you know, it's a very interesting uh, story. And, you know, you go there, in many cases, the the um the, at the various restaurants the menus are not even translated yeah. and uh the waiters uh, don't uh, necessarily speak much english at all right um but it's it's a success sounds very interesting again it's you know we can use one of these, these in restaurants are in the you know like yeah the 30s well you're not yeah, going to have that it's that kind of creativity yeah. that makes New York, but you need a fun. population. To, to me, it's not. It's not about right. the big, showy, fabulous. Right. You know, high-end restaurants that I'll never go to. Um, we go to some is, high-end restaurants. Honey. Don't kid yourself. But yes, yes. Go ahead. We don't. We're, we're never going to go to the the big fancy ones. Forget that. You yeah. know, I'm not even interested in that. That's like you know asking me to eat the food that's in the taste of things. Uh, so, but. Uh, so this is interesting. Hand hospitality. It's, yeah. a, it's a business success and I think a food success as well. Yeah. All right. Listen, as I said, it would be great to have it in Pennsylvania. Though we're doing a little better. We're definitely getting better restaurants. We should. Have we mentioned Finbar? I think yes, we, we did. have. We okay. Have. We yeah. Have. I mean, there's some interesting Moving places. right along. Moving right along. All right. Uh, there's an article about saunas. I know. This is your article because I, I well, am not it, it, a sauna person. Well, it is in part mine article, in part yours. I'll tell you why. Because anyway, the article is in Minnesota. The saunas are harder than ever. And they talk about in that part of the country that people would come from Norway 100 years ago and they would build their sauna before they built their house. And it's a big part of culture over there in Norway. And uh, it's been up and down in terms of Minnesota. And it got a bad rep at some point because it was associated with with sex in some way. I don't know how. And then, uh, and then the uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll explain it to you <laughs> later. And the pandemic wasn't so kind to the sauna industry, but uh, now uh, saunas are back. Uh, Minnesota people, in Minnesota understand you wear your clothes in the sauna. Uh, they're committed to that. 
There are people making a lot of money selling saunas, and you're selling them. And I was interested whether they were electric or they were just uh, relying on somebody building a fire. They're, these are fire-driven saunas. So what they're really selling are units that are somewhat insulated. And I'm um, sad to say somewhat translucent. Uh, but in any event, uh, there are people who have them by the water and they have a fire going in. Uh, there are two aspects of the sauna that they emphasize, and the, the Minnesotans that they interview love the sauna. One is they say that when you're, uh, it's a great communal experience. You have a certain kind of conversation in a bar, but it's kind of distorted by alcohol and it's not necessarily that intense. Whereas when you're sitting next to people in a sauna, you know, and there's a certain level of discomfort, or at least uh, let's just say there is a lot of heat, um, people have more meaningful conversations or perceive the conversations as more meaningful. So it's more, it registers more in a communal way, uh, maybe so. They're talking about running saunas at 180 degrees. And, uh, you know, we have a sauna. I do use it. You're right. But I don't run it at 180 degrees. Nobody in this part of the country runs at 180 degrees. But they're into it. Uh, but the other part of it is the so-called plunge. That's where you come in. Apparently, a lot of people, a lot of people, not everybody, uh, uh, really honor the tradition of standing, walking out of the sauna and jumping into cold water. Um, Which I think you can do if your sauna is 180 degrees. You think it helps you? Yeah. Well, it could be. It's it's uh, up and down, right? Okay. It's it's a big contrast, but on the other hand, you are retaining some heat. I wonder about that. But people do it. Some people do. Some people don't. And uh, of course, they swear by it. Those who survive. So uh, there you have it. So in a culture. I think Minnesota is going to really monopolize that. I don't see it coming to New Jersey. But we do have a sauna, and you have taken the plunge. So uh, and I'm not doing it again. But I I did see signs up in Hazi's neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, for a, actually a plunge this weekend. We missed it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so. God. Dang. Dang is right. And finally, this is just apropos of nothing. There was a, a book review by Dwight Garner, and I have I find myself drawn to his book reviews. Dwight Garner, who used to live in Frenchtown. Uh, and um, it's a book review. It's a review of a book called Carson McCullers, A Life by Mary Dearborn. And what drew me to it were a couple different things. One is, uh, one is, she seemed to be a remarkable person, somewhat weird person. Uh, Carson McCullough being famously the author of The Hardest of Lonely Hunter and the member of the wedding. Uh, and those books were written in the 1940s, uh, both made into movies. Uh, and I will still say The Hardest of Lonely Hunter is the saddest movie I've ever seen. Sad, intentionally sad. Um, but uh, she was just a real an odd bird, um, and uh, it's just a crazy life story, as, as shown here, including at one point talking about when she lived in Brooklyn uh, in a building uh, where other apartment dwellers uh, included um, W.H. Auden, Benjamin Britten, and Gypsy Rose Lee, uh, the subject of the musical Gypsy, a stripper. And, um, which is well, that was sort of an artistic commune for yeah, a while, yeah, I guess. And, and we, of course, had seen that play, The Habit of Art, which is based on an imagined conversation in London later on between, um, between W.H. Auden and Benjamin Britten, in which they made some reference to their earlier dealings with each other. In any event, uh, it's just kind of interesting to think about it, including they described a scene where. Carson McCullers and Gypsy Rose Lee are running after a, a fire engine just to follow it so they can see the fire that they're so eager to see. It's crazy. But there was one other thing that I thought was interesting about the review. And because what Garner says 
is that this is a nice enough book about uh, her. But there's another book that is superior, another biography, of course, McCullough's by Virginia Spencer Carr, which is called The Lonely Hunter. And he demonstrates why one book is superior. And I think he does it pretty effectively. And he does it by just uh, transcribing the opening paragraph of each book. And I think you'll see what I mean. This is the, uh, the book that he's reviewing here, uh, Carson McCullough's A Life. This is how it starts. Carson McCullough is titled one of her first, more directly autobiographical stories, Wunderkind. She was just such a child, which was, as with so many talented children, both a blessing and a curse. And this is Garner showing the book he prefers, as he puts it, and here's Carr, the author of the earlier book, flicking his lights on right away. Here's the quote. This is how it starts. Tell you what, Helen, said the lanky Georgia girl. Let's skip the cotton candy and hot dogs and save our dimes for the rubber man and all the freak shows this year. The pinhead, the cigarette man, the lady with the lizard skin. I don't want to miss a single one. So, as he puts it... Uh, well, I agree. That gives a, you know entirely different uh, yeah, it's, it's a, jump off to right, exactly you know, right. a, a portrait of this woman. And it sounds... The, the second one sounds to capture her much... Right, know, much more vividly, much in yeah. real time. As he puts it, in the first one, you felt you were with McCullers. Uh, in the first one, it's just like you're in a museum and you're being told about something. In the second one, you're with McCullers in real time. The author allowed you to see more things out of the corner of your eye. Uh, so I thought that was striking. Uh, but again, apropos of nothing. So uh, another wonderful week. And uh, we'll be back next week. We'll be in March, the next time we do this. Right. All right. So until then, this is uh, Dan Apuhoff. And Tamsin Granger. With, with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. And we'll see you.